0: If you have your Bible on you, you can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, and uh, let's pray together. Father, I trust you, I trust your word, I don't believe I have to do much more than just say it, because it works, because it is your voice and your authority that speaks through your word. And it will accomplish that for which you send it. And it will not return to you empty. And so we trust your word. And we trust your spirit to deliver it with passion and deliver it as a plea for lives to change. And then we trust your spirit to do the work. So we call on Christ to be exalted, to work in us and through us this morning. Praise in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Uh, I would imagine that most of us have heard the idiomatic phrase, like father, like son, right? Yeah, we've all heard that? Like father, like son. It's a common phrase. Um, It predates every single human in this room. It predates every single human in this century and the previous century and the centuries before that. So I came across this word, and when I came across this word, where I found it kind of surprised me, so I went and did some research and tried to find like where did this phrase like father like son originate, and so I went to uh, the free dictionary online and they've got a section that is all about idioms, so idioms are like these common generic phrases that we all know and use, and so uh, we've got this Phrase and, and I go on this site and I look at it and they're like the earliest indication of where it came from was 14th century A.D. and I was like raw <laughs> because I found it somewhere way earlier than that. I found it in the Bible, in the Old Testament. And when I came across this text, because I, it's in Ezekiel 16. So I was, in, I'm just reading Ezekiel for the fun of it because that's just that's just the book that I chose to read and kind of like my spare free time not to study it as a pastor, but just to enjoy God's word. I'm reading Ezekiel. It's really entertaining. Super great book. If you haven't read it, read it. It's wonderful. And as I'm there, I come across this phrase where God says, like mother, like daughter. And I was like, that's really, that's really an old phrase. And in fact, in that text, it's Ezekiel 1644. God says, people who use proverbs will use this proverb about you. Like like mother, like daughter. So this is a proverb that predates even its writing in Ezekiel 16, which means this is a 2,600-plus-year-old phrase that we're still using today like it's new. Isn't that crazy? So I thought the history of that was really entertaining to me, but there's also a really pertinent reality to that phrase that is very applicable to the text that we're in today. And We'll get there near the end. And I'll show that to you later, but what I want to look at this morning is Paul's warning to the church on the condition of the world and what that means for us today. So, where the world's at, what people in the world will be like, what they're like now, and how they'll get worse, and what that means to us, the church, who are supposed to be, and who are, the purity of Christ. So, we're in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, and Paul writes, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. So this phrase, last days, refers to this time period that we're in right now. Any time from Christ on earth, his first coming, right, to his death, resurrection, and ascension, from that time until he returns again, which means the medieval times, uh, you know, 400 A.D., 1500 AD to today and into the future until Christ returns, that defines the last days. And Paul says that during these last days, there will come times, that word times is important, there will come times of difficulty because that word times literally means seasons. So there'll be seasons, and this difficulty that Paul's talking about is evil. So there will come seasons of evil. Which could mean that sometimes uh, these sins are more prevalent in a culture at one time and less prevalent at another time. It's kind of like a holy or an unholy evil roller coaster that we're on. That's what Paul's really saying. There'll be times of elevated evil and times of less prevalent evil. And it kind of goes up and down and changes in variation. And that's what we can expect post-Christ ascension to his coming return is that there'll be times when, you know, because I hear people tell me all the time, the world's getting worse, and I'm like, worse? Do you know anything about the Roman Empire? Have you heard about Emperor Tiberius? That guy was wicked. You can't tell me, we do not have worse world leaders today than Tiberius, (laughs) okay? No one was worse than that guy. So when we talk about the world being worse than it's ever been, I don't think that's really accurate. We've had a fluctuations of, of seasons. We've had seasons that were tremendously evil and seasons that were seemingly kind of good, almost wholeheartedly. I mean, think about it. I, some, of, some of you here were alive during the 50s. I was not, okay? But when I watch, and maybe I'm just overly influenced by television shows that I grew up watching with my dad, like the Andy Griffith Show and stuff like that, and I look back at those you know, the 50s and maybe even the 40s or a little earlier. And it's like, man, those were wholesome times, right? Like, it almost feels like those were seasons of, like, less evil. But evil was still prevalent. It just showed up in different ways. And, and so we've got, and I think today we look at our world and, and we think it's getting worse. And, and I think we would all agree that things kind of seem to be getting worse. And then what the natural conclusion of, of Christians is to say, well, that means Jesus must be coming back soon. And so we're going to look at that a little bit. So Paul provides us a, a list here in, chapters, in, in chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. And this list marks the general nature of people in the world, okay, that will be the way that the world is from now until Christ returns. And what he's, he's not saying in this text what he's not saying in this text is that these specific sins will increase as the return of Christ draws near he's not saying that but he and others do say that in other places okay in Matthew 24:12 Jesus tells us as the end draws near that lawlessness will be increased and then if we come back to second Timothy chapter Three. in verse 13, a few verses after our text, Paul says, "Evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse. Okay And then in Luke 17, as Jesus describes the wickedness of the end times, he says in verse 37, "Where the corpses, there the vultures will gather, meaning where sin is available, more and more people will run to it, implying an increase, in the prevalence of evil and in the pursuit of evil in our world. So, I think it'd be easy for us to look at our world and say, yeah, in my lifetime, whether you were born in 1950 or you were born in 1980 or you were born in 1995, you could all, I think we could all say that in our lifetime, sin is increasing. The world is becoming more wicked. Evil is becoming more popular. Crime is getting worse. Governments are approving of sin as a community. We are accepting things that the Bible does not allow. We as a people are just doing worse things. And so I found this report from U.S. News and World Report, and this is what they say. Just as in the United States, crime is on the rise in almost every country around the world, from London to Moscow to Johannesburg. Crime is fast becoming a major menace that is changing the way in which many people live. Crime is also becoming more violent. More criminals are using firearms, even in nations where gun control is strict. So all of these reporting countries who contribute to that report also know an increase in killings, Assaults, rapes, robberies, and burglaries. So that's worldwide. I think it's safe to say that our world is becoming increasingly evil. And I think what Christians automatically do is they jump to this conclusion: Jesus is coming back. Well, in this text, that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying because of well, seasons, it could get increasingly evil. It could get better near the end because as the end draws near, not only will sin increase, but so will the proclamation of the gospel. But because of the increase of sin, when we proclaim the gospel, as the end draws near, there will be a greater persecution for preaching the gospel, because the world will continue to accept evil. And if you don't believe me, read just a few verses after our text in 2 Timothy 3.12. Listen to this. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, stop there. Do you... Desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? You have to answer that question for yourself. Do you? Is that what you want? Do you desire that? Desire to live a godly life in Christ and everything that comes with it. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Wait a minute. I take it back. I don't want to live a Godly life in Christ Jesus now. None of them am going to be persecuted, right? And so the reason that that persecution comes is because what Paul is telling us just a few verses earlier, which is our text today, that the world's evil. I mean, they killed Jesus, and Jesus said, they're going to do to you what they did to me. So we have to accept that we live in an evil world, and that we're living in a world full of people who don't know God, don't love God, love their sin, and love themselves. will pursue their own desires and create their own morality and create their own rules to live by and then enforce those rules upon you. And then you've got a choice to make. Do I live by the rules that the world and the governments are establishing or do I live by the rules that God has established? And if you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will follow God's word. And when you do, because the world creates different rules and different expectations, you will suffer for it. And Jesus says, that's exactly what it takes to get into heaven. Not that suffering's your ticket to heaven, but in Romans eight seventeen, that's what he says is required of those who want to be associated with God in Christ. And then in verse 8, Romans 8, 18, he gives us this promise that, but that's okay, the suffering will hurt, but it's worth it. It's worth it because you get glory. And so, this isn't just a warning about... Hey, check out what's going on in the world. Look at how evil the world's going to be. It's also an encouragement that you need to understand what you're going to be facing. If you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you're going to face some opposition. And as the world increases in its evil and sin, that opposition is going to grow stronger. So, the church has to be ready for the increase in evil around us. And I'm going to tell you why we must be ready, but first I want to tell you what we need to be ready for. So, verses 2 through 5. Here's Paul's list. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. So let's kind of unravel these 19 or so identifications of our world. Like, if you knew one person who was all these things, you would probably look at that person and say, that's an evil dude, Right? And so the, rea- the reality is you, you probably don't find people who portray all of these things. Um, but I want to walk through them. And, and you've got to understand, I'm being very general here. okay? And I think that we could dive into each single one of these on this list in much greater detail. And it could be even more vague. And there are different ways to approach each one of these. Like one of them is pride. I, we could talk about, I could do a whole series on pride. And I'm going to give you like a few sentences on it. You know what I'm saying? So we got to understand that. I'm being very general here, but I just want to kind of capture the overall essence of what our culture and our world is trying to perpetuate upon you and promote within themselves so that the church is ready for the world that we're walking into when we leave these doors. He starts with lovers of self. And this is key because it is kind of, the lay, kind of the foundation of all of this. Lovers of self is idolatry. To love anything other than God, more than God, is idolatry. Even if it's a good thing. Basketball, golf, your family. <laughs> Did you say Packers? Oh, sorry. Let's leave them off the list, all right? Um... <laughs> I'll just do a whole sermon on that next week. Uh, Yeah, anything that you love more than God is idolatry, okay? And so our culture tells us that you should love yourself. Not only our culture, but Christians say it. I can't tell you how many... Christian, so I actually went online and I was like, look, I was doing some research on the internet, which is not a great place for research, but I do it sometimes anyways, just to kind of get my finger on the ethos of the world and where we're at on some things, so I just kind of looked up lovers of self, and you know what I found? A ton of Christian articles saying love yourself, love yourself, love yourself, and I was like, I don't like these articles at all. The Bible doesn't tell us to love ourselves. It's It's not a command. It doesn't exist in Scripture. There, there is a sense in which we do love ourselves as God's created beings, right? God made you, and he made you in his image and likeness. And God is awesome, so you're awesome. And you should love what God has made. And But when the world tells us to love yourself... They're not talking about love yourself as a creation of God made in his image and his likeness, founded in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, by which you can then see yourself truly for who you are, a wicked sinner who needs salvation, who gets Christ, and then in Christ you become awesome. The world doesn't tell you that. They just say, you're great, you're good enough, love yourself. If you would learn to love yourself, you would stop hating yourself and you'd start loving other people better. And I said that's not true because in First John he tells us you can't love if you don't know God can't love right if you don't know God. And we can't know God without Christ, John 14, 6. So, we're told to love ourselves, but in Christ we can. And and you can love the image of God that he made in you. But ultimately what the world is telling you is, and they're not delineating between the person who's in Christ and the person who's in the flesh. They don't make that delineation. They're in the flesh. And in the flesh, you're saying, love yourself in the flesh. They don't use those words because they don't know what they mean. But that's what they're encouraging you to do. Love yourself in all of your sin. That's who you are, so just go ahead and love yourself. And, and so, that is the true mark of the world. Self-love. And this self-love promotes the next four sins on Paul's list. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, and abusive. With self is the primary object of love, the more you gather for yourself, the better you love yourself, right? So because you love yourself, go get yours, right? Get money at all costs. And when you do it, exalt yourself in it. Why? Because you did it and you're good enough and you deserve the praise because you worked hard and you earned it. It's all about you anyways and you're doing it for yourself so you can love yourself because you are the center of your existence. And this leads to and comes from arrogance, which is required to have love for yourself. And if anyone stands in your way of loving yourself, do whatever you can to get around them. Abuse them, because they're the evil one who's trying to hurt you and not help you love yourself. So they get abusive. And I don't think abusers always, I mean, a lot of abusers know they're abusers, but most abusers don't even know they're abusive why because they're manipulative and toxic and they're sly and sneaky and they've got all these justifications for why they do what they do and so they abuse people mentally and emotionally and they do it because they're insecure in themselves and they abuse you and manipulate you and they're toxic towards you to help them feel secure as they try to love themselves and it all comes from their own insecurity so self-love is really just, I'm so insecure in myself that I have to love myself good enough to make me feel good about myself. And the Bible says, of course you feel terrible about yourself. You're a wicked sinner. You're supposed to feel terrible about yourself. And that's what Jesus is for. So that you can find your security in Him, not in you. Because the reality is, once you realize how wicked we are as people, apart from Christ, we should be insecure. Paul goes on and says that they will be disobedient to their parents. Now this tells us that this is not just, this sinful life, that all these descriptions of of evil that are going to get worse tells us that it's not just the product of a rough life. This isn't just like, you know, these people, all these sins, uh, abusive, uh, arrogant, proud, lovers of money, lovers of self, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, it goes on and on. This isn't just someone who's just had a rough life. And then after all these years, they finally just gave up and just thought, you know, I'm just going to be me and I'm just a rough dude and I'm just going to be mean to people. It's not, it's not what he's saying. Because what Paul says here is this starts at the beginning of life. These kids, these are children who are disobedient to their parents. And who's to blame for disobedient children? The parents. The parents are, are charged with the responsibility of the discipline And it's not happening. So people are teaching their children these evils. I mean, I have friends. I know people who say these things to their kids. Go get yours. Pave your own path. Do what you want. Oh, I can't hurt little Johnny's feelings. I can't hurt his feelings so he can do whatever he wants. There's no discipline, which means there's no love. Because Hebrews 12 tells us there's no discipline, there's no love. And the result of no discipline is children who become ungrateful, unholy, and heartless. Because they have not been taught from their parents that it's not all about them. The next is unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, and brutal. These describe more of like the seasoned heart of self-love. Years of making yourself the priority in life. When you are the sole source of your own truth and you are the end goal of all your glory, then why would you appease other people? Why would you do what makes other people happy? All I see today on social media is, I'm going to do me, you do you. Just that kind of mentality. Like, you want to get in my way? Fine. I'm going to just do me. Kind of like this. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. It's all about me and my love for myself and my own happiness. And if you're in my way, then you're just in my way. And I'm just going to ignore you or run you over. And they don't say those words, but that's exactly what they mean. That's the logical result of their mentality. So why appease other people? Why get out of the way for others when I'm God? When it's all about me and my self-love, I'm going this way. You're in my way. If you care about yourself, you'll get out of my way. And that's on you, not on me. That's the mentality of the world. And let's be honest, we see Christians behave the same way. So, why wouldn't you say what needs to be said to get what you want if you are the center of your world? Why wouldn't you slander people? I mean, what's keeping you from doing it? Nothing. Morality. Morality is the only thing keeping you from doing it. The world doesn't know what morality is. And How could a child raised to be their own god, essentially, ever have genuine self-control when they're controlled by their sin and by the enemy? And then brutality, that is just the natural conclusion of unchecked sin. That's why crime is increasing. Because sin goes unchecked and people get more brutal. Murder goes up. Rape numbers go up. Burglaries and crime all goes up. Brutality increases because sin goes unchecked. He goes on, not loving good. That's the obvious result of those who don't know what good is. So to the world, good is the measure they create themselves. Right? We determine good. And and it is society that determines morality. And because society determines morality, then murder is okay as long as it's a fetus. And lying is okay as long as I have a greater morality to achieve through my lying. See, not loving good is the product of not knowing what real good actually is because the world's creating their own morality. God determines the measure of good, which is his perfection. And without it, Without Christ's perfection, we cannot love real, actual good. And if you don't know real good because you don't know God, then the natural result is your continued misconceptions of morality, which will only lead you to treachery as you deceive others to gain your own good because you're a self-lover. And you'll be reckless with others because Though the world has some level of God's morality in their hearts, it's in their minds, they know it. That's why they have morality at all, because God has established morality in his person. It's part of his creation, and he gives it to the world in general. But without the Holy Spirit, because they're not saved, to keep them in check, they can easily justify others and be reckless with their other people's hearts and with other people's lives because they're immature and they don't know true morality, so it's easy to justify and say things like, well, he hurt me first, so I got him back. And so they're heartless and reckless and they're treacherous. And eventually, this self-love will go from arrogance to swollen conceit. Do you know that at the top of your stomach are nerves that kind of coat your stomach like an umbrella? And then when you fill your belly with food, your belly stretches, and those nerves stretch. And as the nerves stretch, they start sending signals to your brain like, Ow! (laughs) That hurts! Hey, we're full! You can stop eating now! and we're like nah you got to keep going <laughs> right so so god has installed in your body a kind of a check system to keep you from overeating right well here's what happens as we continue to stretch out those nerves by eating by overeating those nerves become desensitized to that pain and they can as they start stretching out they need they, they get when they when they when they shrink back down they're kind of kind of like a wet noodle, like a little limp, you know, and then it takes more filling of the stomach to expand those nerves to where they're actually being stretched, and they can send another signal that, hey, I'm full. So eventually, we increase the amount of food we can take in because we've desensitized those nerves. We lose control. And this is what happens to self-love when it doesn't get checked. It becomes desensitized to arrogance and grows fat and becomes swollen with conceit. And finally, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God and having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. God is the ultimate pleasure. There is no pleasure other than God that will ever satisfy. And the world, apart from God's grace, it's impossible for them to see that and they spend their entire life in self-love. And so they've trained their thoughts and their affections to find appeal and lesser pleasures than God, who's the greatest pleasure, and the result is to lose that greatest pleasure forever. Now, you might think that the kind of person described throughout these verses would be obviously evil, right? Like, and if I knew someone like this, it'd be a pretty bad person. I wouldn't know, would know to stay away. I would know to avoid them because they're clearly evil and bad people. But don't forget that they're manipulative. I mean, Christians can be manipulative too. I'm not saying just all unbelievers are manipulative. What I'm saying is they're manipulated by the enemy. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 their eyes are blind to the truth because the enemy is blinding them. So they don't see the truth. So they're manipulated. By the enemy who is manipulative so they will be manipulative by the power of the god that they follow which is satan and jesus said that himself in john 8 you have one of two fathers god or satan those are your choices you follow one so These people can give off somewhat of a holy vibe or even just like a high morality. Like I know tons of Christians who I would say are genuinely just good people. Or I'm sorry, I know tons of non-Christians who are genuinely good people. That I would look and say, he's a great dude. I like him. He's super nice. He's a good dad and a good husband. But as I get to know these people more and more, I start seeing these, these things that Paul describes here come out in their life. Arrogance starts becoming more evident. A little more heartless than you thought they were once you get to know them. And then I meet Christians who are like this too. But the difference is then a Christian goes, ah, sin, oh, i got to fight this. And they go to a brother or sister in Christ and go, I am so arrogant. Oh, sometimes I'm heartless to my wife. Oh, sometimes I'm this or that. I'm such a self-lover. Create me a clean heart, oh God. That's the difference. And so, these people, this world, might look good, maybe even holy to some extent, because they've got their own morality to follow. So on a moral level, they look good. But the problem is, it's not real godliness, because they have no real power, because real power comes from the real God, whom they don't have, whom is Jesus. And so they deny the power of God because they don't have the power of God because they've rejected the gospel. And so, what are we to do with this list? Right? We've got this kind of general explanation of what the world is like. And I could just, you know, sit here and rant about, oh, the world's so evil. You already knew the world's evil before you came here today. You didn't need this list to know it. Right? You can see it with your own eyes. You know the Bible tells you that it's like this. So what do we do with it? That's the real question. What does this mean for the church? At the end of verse 5, after this long list of evil, Paul gives the church this command. Avoid such people. So, if we avoid these people, there goes evangelism. Right? Like, where do we draw the line between building a relationship with sinners so we can save them, and avoiding them so to remain pure ourselves. We have two biblical realities we have to navigate. Okay, so we've got this dilemma. Okay, We're told to go make disciples of the world, and then we're told to avoid them. Ah, what do I do? Because there are both realities that exist and are important for the church to understand, and so we have to navigate them. So the first reality that we have to navigate is this. We must endure the evil in the world. Which means enduring the evil of individuals we know and interact with. Enduring evil is not approving evil. Okay? If somebody ties you to a stake, and pulls out a whip and lashes your back 30 times, you are not approving evil. You are enduring it. There's a difference. So we can endure evil. That's what we have to do. In chapter, just a few verses earlier from from our text, in 224, Paul says, the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, patiently enduring evil, patiently enduring evil, and correcting his opponents with gentleness. So Paul isn't telling us we can't interact with unbelievers because they're evil. What he's saying is he's telling us to interact with them and their evil with the intention of getting them saved. Because the next verse, verse 25, he says, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So there's a sense in which we need to interact with the world and with the evil that is in it and endure their evil otherwise they can't get saved. But we've got this other biblical reality. The second biblical reality that that we need to navigate is this. We need to navigate... That we also must avoid evil for the sake of our own purity and the purity of the church. In chapter 2, just before the text I just read for you, verses 22 through 23, Paul says, flee youthful passions. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they only breed quarrels. So, we're being warned not to get too entangled in the world and, and, and that there will, that, when we get entangled in the world and in their arguments and in their controversies, we're getting into pointless and worthless discussions and rants of opinions that have no grounding on truth. When we overengage this way, we fall into this trap and we lose sight of our agenda to spread the truth and instead we become part of the problem by partaking in their worthless argumentation. And you could probably say, well, that's not me. I I mean, the arguments I get into are all about truth. It's all about truth when I talk about people. I'm arguing with people all the time. That's not me. But I think social media has exposed Christians to who they really are. Because I can't tell you how many people I thought this highly of until I followed their Facebook posts. And then I just started seeing some things that they say. And I'm just like, all I see is people using their media to tout their political opinions and argue with unbelievers about matters of social justice and issues of uh, like that and debate matters that don't have biblical grounding. I'm not saying you can't get into those conversations, but it's the way it's done. It's just so opinionated. And it's just an opinion. And listen to what Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. And then in 1 Timothy 4.7, Paul commands this, Have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Stop getting wrapped up in all this garbage. What, let me ask you this. If you go on social media and someone out there says, uh, Homosexuality is great and I'm for it. And then you get on there and you say, No, it's bad. It's wrong. It's evil. The Bible says you shouldn't do it. And then they go, Thank you so much. I didn't know that. Now I believe what you believe. Are they going to heaven now? No. Will they ever say that? No. What are they going to do? They're going to argue with you. Let's say you do finally convince them. What, What do they gain? Morality? Big whoop. Morality sends you to hell. They need Jesus Not a biblical, political perspective. They don't need to know all the right biblical truths on matters of social justice. That doesn't get people saved. Why are we arguing with people about abortion? Why aren't we telling them about Jesus? Do we really expect a world who doesn't know the God who created them to value the life that he creates if they don't know him? What good is getting them to believe our opinions on abortion or anything else? If they don't know Jesus, you're not going to change their mind. And if you're lucky enough to change one person's mind, does that really matter in the scheme of life? We're not after changing morality. We're after souls. We're after building a kingdom in eternity where dead people have come to life in Christ Jesus. Stop spreading morality with your arguments and your silly and irreverent myths and start preaching the gospel because that's what they need. So, what does this have to do with my introduction earlier when I said, like father, like son? In Ezekiel 16, God shames his people for their evil. And he says, behold, everyone who uses Proverbs will use this proverb about you, Israel, like mother, like daughter. So God is calling Israel the daughter. And he's telling them that they're acting like their mother. Who's their mother? Their mother are the surrounding nations. And those surrounding nations are profoundly evil. And then in verse 44, uh, sorry, verse, I forget what verse it is. Um, He talks about Sodom. Right after verse 44, it must be verse 45. He talks about Sodom. And says, remember what I did to Sodom? They were so bad, I literally dumped fire from heaven and destroyed the entire city. That's how evil they were. And he goes, you're worse than them. That's how evil you are, Israel. And then in verse 47, he says, not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, within a very little time, you were worse more corrupt than they in all of your ways verse 51 samaria has not committed half your sins you have committed more abominations than they and you call yourself god's people that's what god's saying Like mother, like daughter. You're just like the people around you. Got exactly what you asked for, Israel. You wanted a king. I told you it was bad for you. You demanded the king. You got your king. And now you're just like all the other nations. Like mother, like daughter. Like father, like son. And then verse 52 is the point that I want to bring home. He says to Israel, Bear your disgrace. You also. For you have intervened on behalf of your sisters. What he means there is, you have taken the place of the nations around you as the kings of evil. Because of your sins, he goes on, because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they, you are, they are more in the right than you. So be ashamed, you also, and bear your disgrace. Listen to this for you have made your sisters appear righteous. Israel was so evil, they made the nations that taught them these evils appear righteous. That's how wicked they were. Here's the application. Let this never be said of the church. That we Allow and approve and partake in and promote evil or sin in such a way that we make the morality of the world look more holy and righteous than we are. And the only way to avoid that, I'm going to say something, it's controversial. Paul said it, is this. The only way to avoid that is to. Avoid them. But not complete avoidance, right? We talked about we gotta, we got to endure the evil of the world. So it's not total avoidance. It's avoiding their arguments, avoiding their nonsensical debates, avoiding the myths in the, in the controversies and the, the irreverent conversations and the pointless discussions. Why are you arguing with somebody about morality who has no gauge on God's morality? They need the gospel. So, avoid the debates that go nowhere. We have to be wise as we navigate this world so that we continue to maintain and promote the purity of Christ that, has, that he has purchased for us instead of using it as a justification To enjoy the wickedness of the world. So James 4.4 tells us friendship with the world is enmity toward God. Meaning you can't have both worlds. You can't have friendship with the world and love God. You can't have friendship with God and love the world. You can't have both. And I heard someone once say you can't have your foot in the world. And you can't have your foot with God. Because you'll either love one too much to enjoy the other. You either have too much God to enjoy the world, so why even go to the world? Or you have too much world to enjoy God. You know, you can't have them both. And then God says, I'll draw the line. I'll build the fence. I'll mark the line in the sand that says, if you put your toe over that line into the world, you don't know me. You don't even have me. Friendship with the world is enmity. That word means hatred hatred how many here would say you hate god right didn't think so imagine you wouldn't come to church if you felt like you hated god okay but how many of us live lives that look like friendship with this kind of world that paul just described and we partake in it so we our responsibility is not to save the world that's god's responsibility to save whomever he chooses our role is to proclaim the gospel and let his spirit do the saving work. Okay, that's our role. But also our role is to, pro- to protect and, and, and to preserve the purity of Jesus and the gospel in us and in the church. Now, I'm not saying that you're the one who keeps you saved. That's the work of Jesus. Jude 24, he says, he will keep us. And then Ephesians 1:13 and 14 that once we're saved, we are we receive assurance, a seal from the Holy Spirit that we are good for eternity. And then John 6 and John 10 from Jesus teaches us that truth too. That we can't lose our salvation. So I'm not saying you have to preserve your salvation. What I'm saying is you need to preserve your purity. We have a role with God in the way... That we are sanctified or grow spiritually. So in Philippians 2.13, Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That word salvation means sanctification. I've probably said that here a hundred times. You guys should know that by now. So you have a role in your sanctification, which is protecting your purity. Protecting your holiness protecting the gospel so that your life doesn't look like the world's life which means you can't put your toe over that line and dip it in the world and say you know what i love god but i also really love money so i'm gonna be a lover of money but just i mean it's only one out of the 19 things that pastor mark preached on on sunday so what's the big deal if i've just got a toe over the line do you think god really i'm covered by grace i mean i'm going to heaven anyways I mean, does God really care? Stop using the gospel as your justification for sin. Listen, I know you do it. I know you do it. I know you do it. You know why I know you do it? Because I do it. I do it. I just find myself doing it all the time. I'm like, oh, I can totally do this. It's good. It's good. God understands. (laughs) Yeah, he understands all right. He understands that I am a wicked man who is justifying his sin by dipping my toe into the world and saying, I can have both. God's like, Mark, I call that hatred. That's you hating me. It's you not believing my promises. It's you not believing the consequences that I tell you come with those sins. You don't believe me. And it's you not believing my gospel which says, I am greater than that sin. And I've conquered it and killed it and you want it back? That's you not believing. That's not faith. That's not trust. That's hatred toward me, Mark. And I face that every single day. And I hope and pray that you are better than me. These times where the world is this way, it's full of sin, it's going to increase. We are not to tolerate sin. We are to endure sin. Meaning we live with it as a reality in the world as we share the truth with the world that we hope will be enlightened with the gospel as we share it with them. So these times are here and they're increasing and I think our only defense for our own purity is not to work extra hard, to know extra things, to be more engaged in the world. That's not how we preserve our purity. We preserve our purity by getting deeper and deeper and closer to God. That's how we preserve our purity. You preserve the purity of the gospel, you preserve the purity of the church, you preserve the purity of your own sanctifying process and spiritual growth in Jesus when you get closer to Jesus. When you go to church, spend time with God's people, when you read your Bible and pray and, and, and you and you and you study other books, you study theology and doctrines, and you fellowship with the church, when you fulfill your gift, when you do your calling, when you do your ministries, there's a lot of ways that we stay connected to the church and connected to Christ and grow and mature and get deeper with God and with Jesus. And that is why I'm preaching this sermon today, because starting next week, we're going to do a 13-week series on a healthy church. And what are the identifying markers of a healthy church? What makes a church healthy? Listen. This 13 weeks, that's actually 12 specific, one of them is a two-week thing. So 12 specific things that I looked at concerning Grace Church and thought, these are 12 things Grace Church needs to hear to understand what it means to be a healthy church. There are more than 12. There are books written on what healthy churches are. I don't think I used even one of them from any of those books. Because I'm looking at Grace Church saying, what does Grace Church need? What do you need? Not you, the people, you specifically. What do you need? So, we're going to look at that over the next few weeks. Over the next, actually, over the entire summer. And then, starting in the fall, we'll jump into a new book of the Bible and begin our series in a new book. So, I know it's very unlike me to do a topical series, it feels really strange. My wife said, I'm very proud of you for stepping out of your comfort zone. I said, oh, don't be mistaken. Every sermon will be an exposition of one text. I promise you, we have to do that. But we're going to do the topics. So I'm looking forward to that. But this is important before we jump into that. Because what we need to understand is that there are so many churches in this world that think they're healthy because they have Hundreds of people and lots of money and an awesome worship band with fog machines and cool lights that doesn't make a good church. And listen, there are churches with 60 people in them that think, well, we're being holy and faithful to God, but they are lame and boring because they don't do anything and they don't reach out to the world and they don't grow in debt. They just follow the same old traditions and they think that they're doing God's will. But like Jesus said about the, in the parable of the talents, you can't, I gave you this much money and you didn't even invest it at all and you brought me nothing back. And that's a wicked servant who doesn't turn what God gives them into something better. It doesn't matter what size you are, what kind of church you are, none of that matters. We are a church that I want, and I believe you want us too, to get healthier. My aim is never to grow numerically. Never. My aim is never to get more money. Never. Those are markers of either health or incredibly unhealthy things. So they're not actually helpful at all in knowing if we're a healthy church or not. You know what marks a healthy church? You're going to find out in the next 13 weeks. Be here. (laughs) So it's important that we understand the world that we're in before we dive into who we are supposed to become. So stay in the word, stay in prayer, stay active in your church, stay connected to God's people, stay in worship. Jesus will keep you saved. That's an assurance that we have. But let us fill our role and build our desire for God so to avoid such evil that surrounds us and to preserve the purity of the gospel in the church and in the to the world for the sake of God's glory and for the sake of your joy and for the sake of lost souls. Let's pray. Trust you, Jesus. Trust your word. We know it'll work. We know you're going to use this. So help us understand the world in which we live. Help us to navigate the world while enduring evil and also avoiding it. And give us the wisdom to kind of toe that line. It's very difficult. And we need your spirit to help us. But I pray that you would help us preserve that purity so we could grow in you And become not a healthy local organization, but a healthy people. A healthy organism that is your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You guys are beautiful humans. Have a wonderful week.